0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. I've been preaching through the book of Luke, and we are making our way through it. 24 chapters in the book of Luke, the biggest uh, book in the New Testament, and uh, we will make it by God's grace. We're in Luke, chapter 19. Start reading this morning in verse 11. Read all the way through verse 27. Uh, Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. If you're here this morning and don't have a Bible, slip your hand up. One of our ushers will bring one to you. Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. Let's pray before we read. Oh Father, we believe that you have given us a sure and steady anchor in Jesus Christ. And Father, we just look to you now and, and ask that through Jesus Christ you would feed us. Lord, we believe that every word Jesus has spoken in the Bible is good for us and is working for our eternal joy. So I pray, Father, you'd help us to receive uh, the words of Jesus here in this book of Luke this morning. And, uh, Father, you would change us through these words. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them bring them here and slaughter them before me amen a lot of professing christians in our world a lot of a lot of people who profess to trust in christ seem to believe that the christian life is a Pretty easy life, a a relatively effortless. Uh, passive sort of life. You, you believe in Jesus, but don't really do much more than that. You might go to a few church services, might read the Bible occasionally. You might try to be nice to people in general, but uh, not much more than that. Believe in Jesus and just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. No real work, no effort, no labor, a pretty easy, effortless sort of life. But that is not the Christian life. Yes, as a Christian, you do believe in Jesus, but your faith doesn't then lead to inactivity and passivity. No, your faith leads to work, effort, toil and labor at times, blood, sweat, and tears at times. Your faith leads to doing. You're not saved by your work, But you are saved to work. Ephesians 2.10, you're saved for good works. There is labor in the Christian life. Effort, blood, sweat, and tears at times. And here in this particular passage, Jesus teaches us one thing we must do as Christians. One way we must work as Christians. Christians. Jesus teaches us here that as Christians, as his followers, as his disciples, we must engage in business. We must engage in his kingdom business with the things that he has entrusted to us here in this life. There are two main points to this passage here, I believe, and the first Point is this, number one, Jesus has entrusted us with some things. In the passage right before this, Jesus was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem where he'll eventually be crucified. He will actually be in Jerusalem in the very next passage here in the book. And Jesus had an encounter in the previous passage there in Jericho, had an encounter with a very short man named Zacchaeus. And there was a very large crowd there at the time, probably a crowd filled with lots of Jesus' disciples, lots of other interested people who were following Jesus around from town to town, people there in Jericho, a large crowd. And here in this passage, Jesus is still with that crowd. Luke says in verse 11 that these people heard the things Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, and now Jesus teaches this crowd this little parable or story here. And Luke tells us here why Jesus taught this parable to this large crowd. If you look at verse 11 again, Luke says that Jesus taught him this parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because the people supposed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately now the the, the Jewish people back in jesus 's day. They, were, they had been waiting for quite some time for the kingdom of God to come to earth in a new and powerful way. The, the Old Testament books, the earlier books in the Bible, had, had promised repeatedly that God would one day send his Messiah, his anointed Savior, and, and this Messiah would then somehow bring the kingdom of God to earth in a very new and very powerful way. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day, they were waiting for God's kingdom to come. And they believed that when his kingdom did eventually come, it would come in a certain manner. They believed that God's kingdom would come all at once. Very suddenly, with, with this universal display of power, and glory, and the Messiah would then instantly save God's people from all of their enemies, and and the Messiah would then bring God's people into this new age of perfect peace and safety forever. Bang. The kingdom of God is here. It's all the way here. It's here for good. That's it. The old age is gone. This new age of eternal bliss is now here. That's what the Jewish people believe. That's what they were waiting for. And here's the thing. The people in this crowd here, they are now believing that Jesus is the Messiah. His disciples... These other interested people following him around from town to town, they have begun to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They've seen his miracles, heard his teaching. He's the Messiah. And they now naturally think then that if Jesus is the Messiah, well, then Jesus is probably going to bring the kingdom of God to earth in this glorious and conclusive manner very soon. And what better place for Him to do it than in Jerusalem, the holy city where Jesus is now heading. The people in this crowd here believe Jesus was the Messiah. They are expecting something gloriously big when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. This fantastic, conclusive coming of the kingdom of God. But the problem is that their expectations about the Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom were inaccurate to some degree. They were right in thinking Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. But they were wrong in thinking that Jesus would bring the kingdom to earth in its final conclusive form immediately. Because God had actually planned from all eternity... That the kingdom of God would come to earth in stages. The kingdom would first be initiated or, or inaugurated on earth in the birth of the Messiah. Very quietly, the kingdom of God initiated on earth in the first coming of the Messiah. And then the kingdom would, would slowly and steadily advance on earth into more and more hearts on earth. Very slowly, very steadily. For many years, the kingdom growing like a tiny mustard seed into a giant mustard tree, Luke 13. But the kingdom would not actually be consummated on earth, the kingdom would not actually be fully established on earth in its glorious final conclusive form until the second coming of the Messiah. (laughs) When he would then return to earth a second and final time coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Luke 21 God had planned from all eternity for his kingdom to come in stages. First, the humble beginnings of the kingdom. And then much later, the glorious consummation of the kingdom. But man, this crowd here, a lot of the people in this crowd are thinking that Jesus is going to do it all at once. Bang! The kingdom of is here, over and done. That's it! And they are anticipating that he might just do it in Jerusalem. So, Jesus, in order to correct this crowd's false expectations, he teaches them this parable. And here's the parable. Jesus says that a nobleman Says it says in verse 12, a nobleman, so a man of some very high status of some sort, he is heading out on a journey to a distant country where he will receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And, and the idea there is, is that this nobleman is leaving his home country and traveling to a distant country where he will then be given the authority to rule over his home country. He'll be formally recognized and crowned as king over his home country. And man, that type of thing is something that the people in this crowd would have been very familiar with. There is some historical background to this parable here. It seems that Jesus is drawing maybe from some historical events in this time period. Because about 40 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great traveled from Israel all the way to Rome to be crowned as the official king over Israel by Mark Antony and the Roman Empire. And when Herod died and his son Archelaus wanted to then take the throne. Well, Archelaus also traveled from Israel to Rome right around the time of Jesus' birth in the hopes that he, like his father, would also be given official authority by the Roman Empire to rule over Israel. And I think Jesus is drawing from those events that were fresh in people's minds. He structures his parable that way. And he says now that this nobleman, just like Herod and Archelaus, he is going to travel from his home country to a distant country to be formally crowned as king over his country. And Jesus says in verse 13 that before this nobleman leaves on his journey, he gives ten of his servants one mina each. A mina was worth about three to four three or four months of wages for an average worker back then. He gives each of his servants one mina. He tells his servants to engage in business with his money until he returns. He wants them to invest his money. He wants them to trade with His money. He wants them to do business with his money. Why? In order that he might receive a profit in his absence. Engage in business while I'm away. They are his money managers, his stewards, his servants. But there were some other people in the nobleman's country who didn't serve him and did not like him. (laughs) Jesus says in verse 14 that this nobleman's fellow citizens, his fellow countrymen, well they hated him and they sent a delegation after him when he left saying we don't want this man to reign over us. And that right there is also something that this crowd would have been familiar with. Because when Archelaus, King Herod's son, When he traveled from Israel to Rome right around the time of Jesus' birth in the hopes that he, like his father Herod, would be given official authority to rule over Israel, well, the Jewish people sent a delegation after him because they hated Archelaus and they didn't want him to be king. So this Jewish delegation of some 50 people Arrived in Rome. They brought their accusations against Archelaus to the Roman emperor. And Caesar then decided that Archelaus, instead of becoming king, would become a much lowlier ethnarch. And Jesus says here that this nobleman's fellow citizens also hate him. So they send a delegation after him. We don't want this man to reign over us. So that's the first part of the parable there. And man, what is Jesus doing with that part of the parable there? Well, well for starters, Jesus is correcting this crowd's false expectations. And you know, Jesus, I think he's essentially saying something like this Crowd, you're, you're right in thinking that I'm the Messiah, I am the Messiah. I'm the nobleman here in this story. I am a man of very high status, but you crowd are wrong in thinking that I will bring the kingdom of God to earth in its final consummated form immediately. I'll eventually do it. But some critical things need to happen first. I must first be crucified and then rise again to pay the penalty for the sin of the world. I must then ascend back into heaven, back to God the Father. This nobleman here, crowd, this nobleman here must go on a distant journey. Jesus is saying, I will be gone a long time. And in that distant country, back in glory, where I started, after fully completing my humiliation here on this earth, I'll then be fully recognized and crowned as king over this entire country called planet earth. I'm already king here. As the eternal son of God. I've been king over everything from all eternity. But after I finish my course, my course on earth as the God-man, after I finish my journey as God in human flesh, after my, I offer up a perfect obedience to my Father, my Father will then officially recognize and crown me as king over everything. Philippians 2, I will then be highly exalted and then receive a name above all other names. And then crowd someday in the distant future, I will return to my country to rule and reign forever. And I will then Then, then, bring the kingdom of God to earth in its final, glorious, conclusive form forever. Jesus is correcting this crowd's false expectations. You know what? Jesus is also doing something else right Right there with that first part of the parable. You know what he's doing. Jesus is telling all of his disciples right there how to live in his absence. He, he's telling Christians all over the world right there. He's telling his servants all over the world what me what we must do during this long season when he is physically absent from this earth. And what must we do in his absence as his servants? Engage in business. Jesus tells us to engage in business as servants of the king. We are called by the king to engage in business with the things our king has entrusted to us. If if you are a servant of Jesus here this morning, you would say, yes, I have a faith in Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. If that's you, then your king has entrusted some things to you. And, and what is it that Jesus the king has entrusted to you? Well, everything you have. <laughs> According to the Bible, you don't actually own a thing. It's all his. Your body... Is his. Your money is his. Your house, your clothes, your cars, your lake house, your retirement, your spouse, your children, your gifts and abilities, your time on this earth, everything, Jesus owns it all. Your, your, your time, your treasure, your talents, your very life, he owns it all. And he has simply entrusted to you some of his things. The nobleman, he has entrusted to you one of his mina's. A very distraught man rode on his horse up to John Wesley one day and he said, Mr. Wesley, your 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 house, your house is burned to the ground. And Mr. Wesley thought for a second and he said, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground, and that just means one less responsibility for me. <laughs> That's a proper perspective, Jesus. Jesus owns it all, and he has simply entrusted to you some of his things here in this life. A mina of his, and during his absence from this earth, Jesus wants you to engage in business with his things. Your time, your treasure, your talent, your life. Jesus, Jesus wants you to invest those things in his kingdom. He he wants you to use those things for the benefit of his kingdom. He wants you to do kingdom business with the mina that he has entrusted to you. And why? In order that he might receive a profit in his absence. You know, there's a sense in which Jesus wants every human being to do that. (laughs) Christian or not, Jesus has entrusted every human being with a certain measure of, of time, treasure, and talents. And Jesus wants every human being to use those things in, for his kingdom's good. But Jesus is talking directly to his servants here. His disciples. If you, if you are a servant of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian, then Jesus really wants you he wants you to use the things he's entrusted to you in this life and engage in kingdom business with his things not just sit back and do nothing but actively intentionally persistently engage in kingdom business Jesus knows here that many people in this crowd around him at this time, Jesus knows that that many people around the the world will will not want to be his servants and will reject him. A large delegation of people coming after him, chasing him down, saying, we do not want you to reign over us. Jesus knows that he will be rejected. Like a lot of the Jews were doing to him at this time in history he knows people reject him and he wants his servants to know here that even though many in this world reject him they 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 must engage in business with his things so that's point number 1 here Jesus has entrusted us with some of his things in this life and point number 2 Jesus will hold us accountable for what we do with His things. You look at verse 15 again. Jesus says that when this newly crowned king returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So the, 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 king, the king returns... And he, and he calls his servants in, one by one, to evaluate their stewardship and to reward them according to what they have done with his things. The exact same thing that King Jesus will do with all of his servants when he returns. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, we must all appear. Before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. Revelation 22.12. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And the first two servants here in this parable. They have done what the king asked them to. To do. They have both faithfully engaged in in business with his Mina and they have gained a profit for him, and the king rewards them for their service. You look at verse 16 again, Jesus says, First servant came before him, saying, Lord, your Mina has made ten Minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant! Well done. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And and the second comes in saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And man, (laughs) that right there is meant to be a massive encouragement to those of us who are disciples here in this room this morning. Jesus is is telling you right there that he will reward his people. and He wants you to know that. And he wants you to pursue those rewards. He will reward his people. As, As a servant of Jesus, Any and every time you use the time, treasure, and talents that he's entrusted to you for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus sees it. And Jesus is promising you here that he will reward it, no matter how big or small it might seem to you. (laughs) Jesus profits from your labor. He receives glory from the good works that you do in his name here on this earth. His kingdom advances through the good works that you do here on this earth. Jesus profits from your labor. But you will also be rewarded for your labor. (laughs) With the work you do for Jesus and his kingdom, you are storing up for yourself eternal heavenly rewards. You are somehow maximizing the joy that you will experience in the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus returns, you will receive those rewards. Jesus is telling you that here. Christians will not all receive the same reward. They won't. Some will receive more, some less, depending on what you do and don't do with the time, treasure, and talents you've been given. You're not saved according to your works. You're not saved by works. You're not saved according to your works. You're saved by faith in Jesus. But listen, a genuine faith in Jesus will always have good works attached to it. And you will be rewarded according to your works. Be rewarded according to your works. J.C. Ryle says, Our title to heaven is all of grace. But our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. Believers will not all receive the same rewards, but man, make no mistake about it, every single servant who genuinely trusts in Jesus and does kingdom business for Jesus will, without a doubt, be rewarded by jesus and jesus wants you to know here that he will reward you very generously man <laughs> the servant here was given authority over one little mina and engaged in business and turned it into 10 minas he is given authority over 10 cities and the one who takes that one little mina and makes a five mina profit out of it He is placed in authority over five cities. (laughs) Given authority over those five cities. Man, in this life, Jesus, he he gives you, he gives you some authority over one little mina. (laughs) He gives you some authority over a little time, a little of his treasure, a little of his talents that he gifts you with. Man, those servants who, who use that mean wisely in this life and invest it and, and do a lot of kingdom business with it for the sake of Jesus, they are somehow given much greater authority in the next life, whatever that might mean. I think it goes along also with a greater degree of glory, greater joy in Christ, Because you have been faithful with a very little here in this life, Jesus says, you shall now have authority over much more. Jesus will reward his servants very generously. So the first two servants here did what the king asked. They were rewarded very, very generously. But the third servant did not fare so well. If you look at verse 20 again, Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man you take what you did not deposit reap what you did not sow. third servant did absolutely nothing with his Mina didn't invest it didn't trade it did not engage in any type of business with it just wrapped it in a napkin put it under his mattress, nothing. And why? Well, he says here that he was afraid of the king because, he says, the king is a severe man. Hard, exact, and strict, a harsh man. And it's possible that this servant here really did think The king was a severe, harsh man, and he truly was terrified to do anything with the king's mina, terrified maybe that he might somehow lose his mina, so he just hit it. But listen, we know, we know that the king here is not a severe, harsh man. We know that because he, he just rewarded his other servants very generously for their labor well done, good servant, well done. (laughs) So if this man really does think this about the king, that he's a severe, harsh man, then he doesn't really know the king very well at all. And that's possible. But it's also possible here that the servant didn't really think that stuff about the king. He was just making an excuse For why he did nothing with his mina. He hadn't really hid the mina in fear. He had actually just done nothing with the mina in laziness. The slothful negligence of his master's things. And now he comes up with this lame excuse to try to shift the blame onto the king. You're a severe man! You. It's your problem. You're a severe man, a harsh man. A harsh man. You terrified me. And the king basically traps him in his own words. Verse 22, I'll condemn you. I'll condemn you, servant, with your own words. Condemn you, you wicked servant. If you really thought I was such a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you at least put the mean in the bank? would have been safer in the bank than under your mattress. Then I would have at least gained my mina back along with some interest. So this third servant here either hid the mina in fear or did nothing with it in laziness. But the bottom line is that this servant engaged in no business at all with that which the king had entrusted to him. And so the king then says in verse 24, Take the mina from him. Take take it from him. Take Take it away. Take it away from him. Give it to the man who has ten minas. And why? Look at verse 26 again. Jesus says, I tell you, that to everyone who has, to everyone who has faithfully done business with my things and gained a profit for me with my things, to them more will be given. I can trust them. More authority will be given to them. More responsibility will be given to them. More rewards will be given to them. But Jesus says from the one who has not from the one who has not faithfully done business with my things and not gained a profit for me with my things Even what he has will be taken from him. He will be stripped of every last bit of authority and responsibility and possible reward. He will lose everything. And whom does that third servant there represent? Who is it? Now I think there are are a couple of possibilities there some people believe he's a genuine believer he's a genuine servant who's just a very unfaithful steward does very little for one reason or another with the things Jesus has entrusted to him in this life does does very little to engage in kingdom business with his time his treasure his talents and he ends up with very few or no eternal rewards He makes it into heaven because he has a genuine faith in Jesus, but he makes it in by the skin of his teeth. Nothing to show for his life. His work in this life all burned up, but he himself still saved as if through fire. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.14, it is possible for the bulk of a believer's work in this life to be all burned up. It is possible. It's possible that that's this man here. He could be a genuine believer. He's just a very unfaithful steward. But I tend personally to think that he's not a genuine believer. Jesus calls him a wicked servant here. And in Matthew 25, in a similar parable that Jesus taught, the man who does nothing is thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think this man here is probably a nominal Christian. He's a Christian in name only. He says he has faith in Jesus, says he's a servant of Jesus. He may think he does have faith in Jesus, but his works in this life, or his lack of genuine works, rather, his squandering of Jesus's things in this life, wasting all of Jesus's stuff, proves that his faith is not a genuine faith. J.C. Ryle says that this man is a professing Christian who is content with the idle possession of Christianity and makes no effort to use it for the glory of God or for the good of his soul. An idle possession of Christianity but no effort to use it for the glory of God or the good of his old soul. And in the end he loses everything. We might say, Use it or lose it. Use Jesus' things for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, or you will ultimately lose all of it. Every last bit. Use it or lose it. But it's not just the false Christians in this life who ultimately lose everything according to this parable. No, the unbelievers in this world who flat out reject Jesus will also ultimately lose everything. Jesus, man, ends this passage like he does so many other times with a very, very sober warning. He talked earlier about this delegation who went after the nobleman because they didn't want him to be king. And now look at verse 27. Jesus says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. And Jesus is probably talking primarily there about the Jews in his day who were rejecting him flat out and would ultimately have him crucified. Because of their rejection of him in in just a, a a few years from this time in history, in A.D. 70, the Romans would come in and slaughter them. But Jesus is also probably talking more broadly there about everyone who ultimately rejects him. The eternal fate of everyone who ultimately rejects Jesus, will be horrific. So there it is. Jesus has entrusted some things to us and Jesus will hold us accountable for what we do with His things. He's entrusted each of us with a measure of time, treasure, and talents and He will hold us accountable for what we do with them. The King will soon return to earth And in his absence, we must engage in kingdom business with the things that he has entrusted to us. And man, Jesus gives us a couple of good motivations here in this passage to do this, to engage in business. One is fear. The fear of the Lord is a good thing according to the Bible. And when Jesus talks here about people losing everything and people being slaughtered, he is loving you and me. He is working to stir up in our hearts a fear of God, a healthy fear of God that will cause us to engage in business before he returns. (laughs) But man, Jesus also gives us here the motivation of joy. When Jesus keeps talking about eternal rewards, he's trying to stir in your heart a joy for the things of heaven in order to get you to engage in kingdom business. (laughs) Fear and joy, they're both great motivators. So be motivated this morning by those things to engage in kingdom business with his things. And man, you know what the fact is? That we have all failed to engage in business perfectly. Man, we've, we've all failed to do that. Man, we've all at times squandered his things, hoarded his things for ourselves, hid them under our mattress and neglected to do kingdom business. We all really deserve to lose everything for our neglect of his things. We failed, but man, the good news is Jesus didn't fail. Jesus came to earth and he was a perfect servant. His father entrusted many, many things to to him. And he took those things and he engaged in kingdom business perfectly with the things the father gave to him. A perfect servant who then died to take the punishment that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus lost everything. The punishment that you and I deserve for our neglect of his things. And now, man, through a simple, genuine faith in Jesus, we're forgiven. And we will not then ultimately lose all things. But listen to me, please. A genuine faith in Jesus is a faith that works. It's a faith that works. So be motivated, servants of Jesus. Be, be motivated by a healthy fear of the Lord and a deep joy in the Lord to engage in Kingdom, business, until our King returns. And man, when our King returns, may He look at every last one of us and say, well done, good servant. Well done. Father, we thank You for Your Word, truth of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, bless You. Father, we know that uh, every passage that is more sober in tone, uh, every passage that strikes a chord of fear in our hearts is a passage that came from your heart of love for us. You don't want us to whitewash it or to overlook it or to play it down. You want us to to get on our knees and face it and receive it. And Lord, we just do this morning. We say, yes, Lord, you are loving us in this passage. We have neglected to do kingdom business with your things many, many times Lord, we've been very self-centered, we've called those things our own and treated them as if they were our own when they're ultimately yours. But Father, we thank you, you don't just motivate through fear, you also motivate, you motivate with joy. We thank you for your promise of rewards, we thank you that you are a God who diligently rewards those who seek you. Hebrews 11, 6. We thank you, Father, for these things. We work in our hearts, Lord. May we engage in business for your glory and our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.